Hello and welcome to The Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we're joined by another special guest this week. So, Steve, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Steve Burns. I'm formerly a video games journalist, two grand a title, I suppose. Uh, and now I own and run a production company uh, which makes shows commercials, documentaries, a lot of it in the video gaming space, but uh, not all of it. Very exciting. So Steve's here to talk about Grand Theft Auto 3 with us. On October 22nd, 2001, Grand Theft Auto 3 was released on PS2 in North America and would follow four days later in Europe. It's arguably the single most important game of the modern age and established a template of the now dominant open world genre. So 20 years later, this episode, we're going to talk all about the game, its legacy and how the GTA series would subsequently evolve from this first 3D entry in the series. So, Steve, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, your career. So, you're the first person I've had on who I work with at Imagine. Um, what are your What are your memories of working with me? Just to ambush you out of nowhere. <laughs> it was good. It was good. I, I always thought that there was a lot of, uh, and I'm not actually including myself in this one. I thought there was a lot of really good talent there at the time, and uh, you know, you had guys like Matt Hantran as well, yourself, and just so many people knocking around there. And it was it was a weird time for for games but also an exciting one and uh and yeah i just i'd come from a a sort of you know development publishing testing background so it was it was weird to come on to the other side as it were but generally i thought yeah there was a lot of there's a lot of great memories from that time uh a load of terrible ones as well because making magazines is stupid (laughs) and dumb and hard especially when you uh have to fly back from la and then and go straight into the office because uh, your PDF deadline is about 10 minutes after you land at Heathrow. <laughs> but no, it's the good thing to remember. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, so you, you worked in QA a little bit before um, before Games Media, like you say. What what kind of stuff were you doing in that time? Because it always struck me as quite interesting, the sort of things you got involved with. I got uh, quite very lucky, in fact, uh, and managed to wangle a job out of uh, Electronic Arts uh, and was working there in the early days of 2007 the early days of of ps3 really it informed a lot of the way i approach some of my criticism or writing because and this is this is probably more relevant than ever now you see all of the decisions good bad ugly stupid indifferent that go into making the games that you're waiting for if i could go back say for example to my university and do a talk about you know producing and you know making shows I would say probably about 70% of all the shit that you love is a mistake or someone didn't want to do it or they panicked and put it in at the last moment. And the launch of the the early PS3 days were were very fraught. Uh, I think it's pretty much well known that there were development issues with the hardware. So to see it from the inside and see the frustration from the people upstairs making the game, it was, yeah, it, it was a real eye-opener especially when you were also working on builds of the games for uh, Xbox 360, which was comparatively a total dream. Right, right, yeah. So what kind of games were you interested in growing up? What were the sort of things that got you interested in writing about games or working in games to begin with? I've talked about this before. I didn't grow up in, in Britain. So games, they weren't just entertainment. They were a commodity item because the, the life we were kind of living, you know, working for you know, the British, well, my dad was working for the British Army, it was kind of transient because you didn't know where where you go. You know, you might do a year there and then, hey, you're back off. You're being posted somewhere. And so you had to learn how to make friends with people quite quickly. 
And as a kid, you you know, you can't just go to the pub or, you know. So there are two things. You can play football or you can find out who's got the video games. And so what you end up doing is just borrowing any video game that you can get your hands on because there's no rental stores. There's nothing. There's, uh, you know, there's certain games that you, you can get from uh, German censorship. So I just borrow any. I play any old shit just, because, just, just to play it. Uh, but mainly, I'd say that the key influences on my life and career, stuff like Resident Evil, uh, love Pez. Well, loved it until that debacle the other day. And <laughs> I liked I liked games which one which would had an adventure element to them, but weren't necessarily high fantasy. So I was never really into Zelda, even though I kind of appreciated why people loved it. So I loved stuff like Clock Tower. You know, something that mm. felt quite filmic in a way, even though it's very rudimentary. Something that felt like it was directed. That's why Resident Evil works. So this long and rambling answer is I played everything I could get my hands on because I never knew when I would be able to play it. And I love shooting zombies with really corny dialogue. Cool. <laughs> so after we worked together at Imagine, you moved on to working for Video Gamer. I remember when I bumped into you at a subsequent event, you said, oh, we just bought a pool table. And you made it sound like the best thing in the world. Um, what was working for Video Gamer like after working at Imagine? I had to learn a lot of new things very quickly. And uh, I thought that I was very lucky. I think the story of a lot of my career and actually everyone's career, really, is you can have all the so-called talent in the world. or But if you don't have an opportunity, you just fuck, right? So I got lucky in one way. I got an email from Video Gamer saying, we'd like to see you to interview you about uh, about position here. And I was like, okay. So went along, liked everything they were saying. No guarantee I'd get it. But got it, and yeah, I think that the we were given a lot of latitude to experiment, is the polite way of putting it, I believe. Um, but no, the guys there, the, the, the brass there, you know, they took chances on us. But they were also they were also good at, at what they did, and so I needed a little bit of babying through it, uh, as you could probably imagine. Uh, I didn't do. I still basically did the things that I kind of doing on the print side so more featurey sort of thing so i didn't have to get into what still terrifies me which is news i see i see people doing the new stuff and they're like you're a genius i've got no idea <laughs> you know about mm. about this sort of thing it's i remember going to gamescom one year and yeah i, I was sitting next to i was sitting next to someone and they were the professional you know news editor for a site that escapes me and it was just it's just night and day, you know, they, the, the way that they work. So I, I learned a lot from our guys as well on that when I had to go out. But no, it was it was fun. And I believe that having these different experiences is the key to to not just becoming totally stale. If I can say that, do you know what I mean? It's you have to you have to go with what's new or what's coming up or whatever some algorithm is telling you. Otherwise, you don't you don't eat that month. So, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I feel like your type of writing, your style of writing, was quite influential on uh, UK games media. I feel like I saw people inspired by how you you did things. Um, do, did you feel that at all? Did you feel like your influence um, kind of stretched out a little bit? And do you feel like you ever quite got the right outlet for your type of writing? I don't believe it's influential per se, or even at all, really. It's a very British style of games writing. It just I was just a person who was doing a version of it 
you know, you could go back, and I'm not comparing myself to him, obviously, but you know, Brooker was a bit like that. A lot of PC zone, uh, Amiga Power, CVG, uh, and and all of that. So I, it was the right outlet. They let us do some. I look back on some of the stuff we did, and I just think I think that's why it resonated with people. Not maybe not even necessarily the writing, but just it it seemed so anarchic, and it was like there was a moment where I got a bollocking because. Uh, I'd uh, misjudged a wall and uh, Miller had thrown me into it and I nearly went through it. So it's like an interior sort of stud wall or whatever you'd say. And, you know, the MD right. comes out like, why is there a massive hole in the wall? Like, well, we were making a wrestling show. It's like, right, okay, shut the fuck up and get back to it. <laughs> but um, no, it was the right outlet. And yeah, if people liked it, that's fine. I think there was maybe what people liked was that at that time in my life, I had come off the, when I joined Video Game or whatever, I'd come off the back of some very bad family issues. And uh, I just didn't give a shit, really, about some of the thing. You know, the volume gets turned down on certain things that you worry about, and then you want to make your case. And sometimes we did actually go a bit too far there are a couple of things that i thought mm, in our quest to make people laugh and be different that we've gone we've gone too far there but yeah I just, maybe people just liked that we were so different because i knew what i wanted to do and i was going to do it so maybe that's it yeah the order at 1886 um score turning upside down that felt like a pure steve burns move to me maybe i'm wrong about that's... that but it seemed like you to me that's the one that I, if I could go back, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> okay. Um, um, because it felt, at the time, and I can't really go into too much detail, at the time, there was frustration about certain elements of review processes or something. You know? And uh, and not, not for the publisher, just just in general. You know, it felt like we were a bit on you know, a carousel, going round and round, the same old things. And... I think that so many people were hyping the game, not in the not in the development team or in the in the publishing team, but in the you know in the wider community. And there'd all been so much pushback, blowback on, you know, we'd review something and then people would be like, Oh, you you know, you you don't know what you're talking about. It's like, mate, you haven't played this game. Like what and then so I think that that's where it's from. However, afterwards, looking back on it, it was I would say it was unnecessary, even though we knew the point it was trying to make. I'm not sure that a lot of people did. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it felt unnecessary, so punitive, basically. Uh, and again, as I was saying, I'd been on the development side and I would have gone fucking mad if I'd have seen that and thought it was directed at me or us or, you know, the Royal Wii, the editorial Wii. So that's the one I would change. But on, on the whole... I think uh, we did our best to, to entertain people and try something different and try and follow in that, that sort of British style. And I think like we never considered it to be influential, so much so that we were in L.A. once and this, this guy came over to us in downtown and he, he kind of stopped me and he said, uh, or stopped us, but he's speaking to me, and he said, hey, guys, can I get a photo with you? And I don't. And I, I just, I don't know why I said it. I just, in my mind, I, I, I was like, there's a stranger asking for her. And I just went, why? 
which obviously, given the persona, must have come across as in-universe in dickheads. And then I looked down yeah. and I saw his lanyard and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just thought you were a random guy from LA who wanted a photo and thought we were someone else. So it seemed to have influenced certain people. And if, if people liked it, that's fine. But yeah, I, I would change the order. That's, uh, that's for sure. Yeah, fair enough. So recently, Steve, um, obviously your your company's Special Gun works for different publishers and um, other companies making video around uh, video games. What's that side of things like for you? There's been some amazing opportunities and projects, and again, we've been we've been lucky. Um, but you know, I hope to I'd like to think we've also been good when we've been asked. So we we remade the the, the George uh, Romero Resident Evil Two live action trailer, which which was a dream of mine when I was, again, living abroad with a kid. I mean, in those days, YouTube didn't exist, obviously. And the only time you would see anything would be in a grainy, low-resolution screenshot that someone had nabbed off of a, one of the, the, the very rudimentary lighting capture kits uh, in a magazine. So to be able to produce the, the kind of remake of that was exciting and terrifying because now you're like, Oh right, um, right. well let's not fuck it up then. Hopefully, <laughs> but we worked with Disney on uh, uh, on some uh, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back stuff. We had an amazing time in Japan in Osaka where we went onto the development floor uh, at Capcom's HQ, and I believe that they that's not a thing that's done. So we again we've been we were very grateful to have been asked, uh, which was amazing. Because uh, dev floors to me are, are so interesting because of what's on people's desks just as much as what's on their screens. Mm. And the thing you can learn, obviously, a lot from, you know, what, what books people have got, if they're animators or, you know, not just knickknacks or games, just, just their, their references. And I think you can actually learn more about them for documentary stuff or infer and then confirm by by talking by by seeing what's on the desk rather than asking them because most people are very well media trained um and you're working with them so you're not going to stitch them up or anything but yeah that's good and we just finished the season one of top gear gaming show the official one for the bbc uh again that was uh it was very nice to be asked and to do it but it was it also comes with a certain amount of pressure you know you have that moment in anything where you go they're like, shit, we've been, okay, well, obviously we're going to do it. And then you sign the deal and you go, fuck, man, we can't blow it. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, so there's that pressure. But uh, no, it's been fun. And again, it's it's different. There's, yeah, there's there's so much good stuff to be done in and around that world. And that's why I think there's been a, a, like a mini boom for, for stuff like Noclip and then People Make Games and a lot of stuff like that because it's all storytelling at the end of the day. And people... Video games, to me, have been mystified for a bit too long. Uh, I knew this when I was uh, one of the publishers. They're like, oh, game journalists are coming in now. Uh, basically, like, the equivalent of draw the curtains around here. I get it because, you know, the technology element of it is is important and secret. But it feels like a lot of the places we get to with uh, with players and even with publishers and, and journalists and developers is not you don't really understand how this stuff gets made so seeing that in this mm. new job is, is yeah it's very interesting yeah it's interesting that, that like the, the the video stuff you're doing now because you know I, I did a couple of years sort of producing the sort of xbox youtube channel which is is nowhere near the same scale but is 
closer in tone and uh sort of output i'd say to to what you guys do in terms of like working with clients and stuff and i must admit like i personally don't think i have the chops for that for that work in terms of like the stress of like delivering stuff where there are so many other people like outside of your unit involved that's the thing that got me on a magazine you you can only waste each other's time you know you have a set amount of time to make the magazine and whatever happens is sort of private and in that office but like running a film shoot and i've only done tiny ones but even like we've got a big interview with someone and we've only got half an hour just the pressure of producing like it it takes uh it takes a certain a certain character to to be able to pull that stuff off so you know mega kudos for that thank you that character is a man screaming into a telephone generally and uh and or (laughs) uh moving his death date up about 35 years uh it is stressful uh because (laughs) Because like any, especially when you're doing a something which has a name, uh, a big brand attached to it, that comes with its own set of expectations naturally. So then you're then you're doing stuff like, okay, so we, we were like this host, and what does everyone think about that? And then can we get these guests? And suddenly you're into, you know, the old cliche spinning spinning plates, but all of the plates are essentially Fabergé eggs, and if you drop any one of them, you're dead. So there's <laughs> this. You have to, you have to be fairly outgoing. And I th- actually, I think a lot of this is what I was saying when I was growing up: is that I, I had to learn how to understand what people wanted, or what they were like very quickly, um, to integrate into new schools. Everyone knows what being a, you know, the new kid in a school is. So I had about ten schools, and so, in one way or another, I can kind of understand where a lot of people are coming from. And what they would like, maybe. Uh, maybe I'm overselling myself. Mm. I'm not not Don Draper, but you know, just uh, <laughs> just trying to think about. Okay, so where did they win? What's their win? And how do we actually compromise on me? And how do they understand that? You know, we everyone's got a win, and that may be you know loggerheads with one another. But yeah, it, it is stressful, but it's fun. You know, weird, <laughs> horrible way. <laughs> yeah. I I think it's. When you finish the shoot, so Top Gear was the the logistics on it. When you get on set and you've got all of the the lighting rig and you've got the you know hair and makeup, and you've got the green room and you've got the fucking Ferrari Testarossa turns up, and you've got a good blend. More importantly, more than the toys, uh, you've got a good blend, and you, you 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 get to know. I mean, you guys would know this. Any project, you're like, this is good. Yeah, this is good. I can feel this is going mm. somewhere, and that's. That's the only. That's the reason you do it, really. With anything we were doing that was substantial enough, I had a certain point where I thought oh, we've got enough now. After that, I didn't really care, or like that's all I needed to get to was like we have enough to fundamentally do the thing we have to do, and just the relief when you hit enough is just our bliss. When we were dealing with the the Ferrari stuff, it's just oh, it, you know that this was a. I mean, they're, they're rare anyway, or rare-ish, I suppose. But this was a right-hand drive version, so and those are super rare. And um, you get to a point where, like, yeah, you're fretting, like, and especially you got a lighting rig over this car, two hundred grand, and also you can't just even if you had two hundred grand, your insurance paid out, can't just find another one. So <laughs> you know, and you've got this massive lighting rig over the top of it, and you know, the gaffer and the, the, the DOP. 
and they're moving, you know, the, the, the lights, and you're just looking at it thinking, oh, I'm going to die here. It's like Ferris Bueller, you know, is a car just going to go through? Like, yeah, and you're like, <laughs> oh. But also you feel that about, more importantly, you say, obviously about the people, because there's a lot of pressure on them. So you've got to make sure that, that they're comfortable, that they're feeling good, that they're not being, you know, feeling that they're totally under the gun. Um, and mainly the most important thing in my, this is my piece of advice. And this is Mills. It's my business partner piece of advice. Get a good caterer because if people have a bad lunch, you will have a bad shoot. And that's just the rule. <laughs> okay. I'll keep that in mind. There you go, Matthew. If you ever go back into video, just, you know, <laughs> oh, more if sandwiches. Known, good if sandwich. only I was one lunch away from success. Good, good lunches, <laughs> my friends. Uh, that's, that is the key. Trust me. You'll be amazed. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great stuff, Steve. Well, let's take a short break then. We'll come back and we'll get into the uh, GTA 3 side of things. Back to the podcast. So, in this section, we're going to talk a bit about GTA 3. Well, a lot about GTA 3. That's the name of the episode, as you uh, as you've seen if you downloaded this. So, Steve, I brought you on because I feel like you're a, a great thinker about Rockstar games. That's certainly how I remember you from working with you. What's your sort of history with Rockstar? Well, what an intro that is! Um, almost certainly, <laughs> gigantically, massively overblown. What I was saying about games that feel like they're directed uh, or have a, a movie quality, shall we say? When I say movie quality. I don't mean stuff like, you know, like uh, FMV games of, of, of the past. What I mean are games which which take extremely deliberate framing decisions to be to be a wank about it. And uh, so, I think that's what a lot of people love about GTA, even if they even if they don't necessarily know how to articulate it. And that's not anyone's fault. That's just because they don't spend all of their times reading books about 70s Hollywood and shot setups and framing like dorks like me do. Um, mm. But they were obviously massively influenced by the things that influenced me um, and that I loved. And I found a lot of the design decisions, and at the time I was playing it, I, I didn't really understand it, but a lot of the design decisions for three, it was so intelligent, but not necessarily in the way that the people thought. I'm sure we'll get into that in a second. And I just, as I dug deeper into the systems, you could see the way that they were layered. And you was like, that's why that works better than other open world games. And that's maybe with that inspiration or what, that's why this is the king and not, say, true crime. Mm. A small bit about the making of GTA 3 then. DMA Design was purchased from Infograms for 11 million in 1999 by Take-Two. Um, they uh, that was a year after the publisher of the original GTA from PS1 BMG was acquired by the company at the time DMA was working on two games called GTA 3D and GTA Online Crime World obviously um, only one game would come out of that uh, but influences on the game included Quake, Midtown Madness and movies like Casino, Scarface, The Warriors and Goodfellas which is self-evident when you're um, you're playing the game but um, that's uh, IGN is my source for that by the way um, and that's uh, Leslie Benzies the uh, producer of the game said that our main goal was to create a game where the player is free to do as they please, where it is possible to interact with and receive feedback from any entity within the world without the player being confused about their objectives. The number of options available to players made it hellish for testers on the game, as you might imagine. Benzies was proud of how cohesive the world was. You'd hear ads on the radio, then see vans from the same companies driving around Liberty City. 
It was made primarily by 23 people, um, according to that same interview from February 2001. Um, the thing that kind of always blew my mind about about this was um, when you conceptually thought about the idea of 3D, a 3D GTA, from playing the 2D GTAs. I think uh, I think everyone who played the 2D GTAs, which were a little bit out of time in that they were 2D top-down games, they're a, bit, a little bit unusual for the time. Was what would these look like in 3D? And you saw stuff like Driver Two, where you were like, "Well, will it maybe resemble this?" And it comes along and just absolutely um, blows out blows out your expectations. It's just so uh, complete as a package. It's so much better than it should be in theory. So to start with the 2D GTAs then, um, Steve. So these games were popular in the UK but didn't seem to break out in the US like the 3D games would. Um, why do you think that is? Is there something quintessentially British about the 2D GTAs that maybe doesn't translate outside the UK? I think this actually applies to GTA 3 as well, but much bigger way the same there's the same like a broader point as as a british person or in the british audience playing gta as uh, you know the original uh, and maybe not even gta 2 is a bit more stylized and more kind of retro futuristic but especially three was that you you were exploring this amazing world but you were also a stranger because there was a strong chance that you had never been to a version of you know you've not been to new york or you maybe weren't familiar with the the strangeness of strangeness of American Americana. Uh, what I think was really important, and why maybe the British uh, market liked it more, was because it felt like this weird odyssey. The radio stations, to me, I think, are, are, are one of the keys to it. So, and I think that's why the casting of Laszlo is inspired. So he's sort of your guide, your spirit animal, through this strange world. And you're thinking what he's thinking. So suddenly you're on the same page. So both of you are navigating this this strange and dangerous world. Yeah, for sure. Matthew, what was your history with GTA coming to um, GTA 3? Or like, what is your history with GTA sort of generally? When do you sort of like get involved with the series? I guess it sort of goes to your previous question as well about like what the 2D GTAs were about and why they didn't maybe take off like... I remember this being on a school computer of all things, like someone had somehow managed to install it. So I didn't have it at home, but I remember playing it. Yeah, in in school, in you know, in the in the IT room at lunchtime, and not really appreciating it that it was this big controversial thing, or having a sense that it was going to be a big successful thing. The two D games. I always thought they were a little kind of like abstract and odd you know i don't think anyone ever got particularly far with them because they were quite fiddly to play i kind of grouped them in with things like carmageddon like just quite throw away nasty sort of nasty funny slightly sort of exploitative things you know obviously i knew that gta3 was connected to those things but just the the promise of it and the promised sophistication of gta3 seemed to sever a lot of ties with it like i don't see the through line at all really from from those top-down ones to the 3D one. I also lived it pretty vicariously through games magazines because we didn't have a PS2. You know, I, I didn't have a PS2 until, you know, I bought a Slim at the end of its lifetime and kind of caught up with it. Um, my brother got one a few years in, but um, we definitely didn't have one when GTA was on the scene. Yeah, I just remember reading about it in Games Master and looking at the screens and it being one of two games where the impression was the mad men have done it. You know, they've, they've built the world. The other was Shenmue, yeah. um, where to read about those and see pictures of them 
you know, not even footage of them, but just to piece together what those games are from static images, you just assume, oh yeah, that's the whole world, you've done it, congrats. How exciting for people who get to play that. So I was always very, like, envious um, from afar. That makes sense, being a GameCube owner as well, I suppose, where you missed out on it. But um, um, So I suppose then, like, um, Steve, like... When you first started playing Grand Theft Auto 3, I suppose, like, let's go slightly before that. Do you remember reading about this in the press and being excited about it and seeing it as a big deal? The answer, truthfully, is no. Because Mm. it felt like in those days, and uh, I was a huge, and still am a huge fan of PSM2 magazine. uh, And that was was my magazine, uh, you know, my go-to. There was one point where they issued an apology for uh, writing more words uh, about, about Jeremy Spake star of airport at the time than they did about the original god of war in preview and it felt it felt at that point that you you could things could sneak up on you and i think uh i I think the the through i think the through line is is that if i was to use a a movie uh analog for it it would be michael so the first ones are la takedown and then the 3D ones are <laughs> right, and I don't mean mm. that in. So they're they're essentially a remake with the budget, but the core right. feeling of it remains because the first one was fiddly, and it was difficult, and didn't you have to press triangle to walk? And you know, and there was, uh, and, but there was there was something there. But the thing there was the atmosphere and the tone, and and the and you're absolutely right. The promise it had me thinking, man, what would GTA be like? Even at, you know at that age. If it was a bit like Driver, or, or 3D like Driver, they are extremely different, obviously. But but then when it arrived, it just... It, to me, I may have just been ignorant, or you know maybe other magazines were covering it, but it wasn't this huge, to me, it seemed, this huge sequel that everyone was like, right, this is, you know, this is the three quarters. It wasn't a Zelda. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a Mario game. It didn't seem like it was blanketed wall to wall. I remember PSN2's review. So suddenly it had a rave. Again, as you said, fuck, they have done it. And this looks, what? Right, I have to get it. I remember Grand Theft Auto, the series up until that point, had always been the kind of subject of like playground kind of like, you know, have you heard about this game? kind of discussion and it becoming this very coveted series of like you know quite mature games and like, like you say Matthew like it's a kind of like disposable nastiness to the 2D GTAs but um mm. I certainly felt the kind of like wonder of driving around a city in those games and thinking about like it is really cool that they've done this weirdly I got that feeling more from the London one just because it felt more like a place I'd been to I guess um than mm. um, the the, the uh american based original or the more stylized um, gta 2 like steve says but um gta 3 when that came along it was like a brother of a friend who who had got the game as soon as it came out and was like this thing's really fucking special and i think that that was a, a, a like a a very slowly building movement of people just being like holy shit this game is like like nothing else it would eventually go on to sell 14.5 million copies but i think that I think you're right, Steve. By the time Vice City comes around, it's a serious um, commodity to the big games mags, and it's like the number one thing. Yeah. But um, yeah, it maybe wasn't yeah. there from day one. I reread Games Master's review of GTA 3 um, just before recording this, and it's like, I think it's like a world first review, or that's what the cover says. Uh, and it's like four pages, and they give it 91. 
And it's almost like they don't know what to do with it. The writer is trying to convey that you can kind of do anything in this world. Um, and like the, the only solid example he has is you can steal like a fire engine when it comes to put out a fire and then drive it around yeah. as as his example of like total total freedom and he doesn't really talk about the story or the missions or anything like that but it's you can definitely sense this initial sort of struggle to sort of pass exactly like how big and important it is didn't come out of nowhere obviously but it, it felt like it came out somewhere close that, that combined with how it had the things that it did so you're saying about the writer with the systems and stuff like that there's such a good feeling in in games especially around about that time where if you you know you could use your ideation your imagination and think what if i do this and then it works you know it's the fucking tagline for primer what happens if it actually works and then it does and the game doesn't doesn't punish you not punitive in fact the game rewards you and that combined with it just sort of appearing in, in a lot of way the word of mouth the 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 playgrounds i'd got my copy early from an indie by this point i read psm2's review and i was excited so got home and i and then the next day a load of other kids had got it there's a mission i believe it's called uh, turismo and it's uh, it's not even that far into the game but you're a kid and you've only got fine amount of time to play it or whatever and i remember someone saying oh yeah i've heard that when you uh when you finish the turismo mission you get a million dollars and to spark an imagination, like, I mean, it's obviously bullshit, like, you know, but <laughs> to spark an imagination that the game has the capacity to do that, to reward you with something like that, is where it is where it just blew people's heads off, I think. And you said about the story that the story is actually is weirdly different to the later ones. Uh, it's a revenge thriller, so it's like it's like payback, like Mel Gibson's payback, or you know, it's just hey, you've been betrayed, you're in the city, find the people who did it, but you've got to get up the chain. Whereas the later ones, are, you know, stuff like midlife crises or being Tony Montana. Uh, I got GTA Three uh, Christmas 2001. I um, tricked my dad into getting it from Argos. I said it isn't that bad, it isn't that violent, and I was 13, and he bought it for me, and my mum was not happy. Um, but I, I regret nothing, of course. Um, if the police want to arrest him, I'm happy to give up his details. That's absolutely fine. Uh, kind of a plea bargain thing, that's fine. Um, so, weirdly, when I remember this game, the thing I remember most is the first island in the game, Portland, because it took me so fucking long to get off of this island, to like progress far enough to get there, that I ended up driving around this one third of the map over and over again. And I think that... The um, Mafia missions in this are like the most memorable in the entire game, just because so many of the best characters are quite front-loaded in this game. You meet a lot of interesting people, and then um, uh, you're kind of like slow rise to to get revenge against Catalina, who shoots you in the opening, and you get arrested and all this stuff. And I think that in my... uh, When I remember GTA 3, I just remember driving around these like dingy streets of portland in like um in a cab or a shitty car you know you listening to head radio or listening to chatterbox and just like parking at the coast and looking over at staunton island the second location and just like (laughs) listening to the city sound and and the fact that i was absorbed enough to even think the city sound was atmospheric or that like it was worth like pausing and taking it in was just a kind of sign of the the impact it had as a kind of like uh, you know, as a world to step into. Totally, mm. totally. Yeah, I, I, the, the thing you say, Steve, about Playground Rumours, so true with this game, because people at school would say, 
okay, there's a plane in this game, right? But it doesn't fly properly. But if you're like a fucking magician, you can make this thing like actually fly. Um, or like you can <laughs> snipe the moon and the moon will change size. And, and then going home and trying this stuff. Yeah, it was pure magic for that stuff. Yeah, so uh, Steve, I was curious, what what do you remember as the kind of like highlights of this uh, of that world, and the, what are the kind of details that come back to you when you remember it now? If I was if I was to describe it in the terms of the movie terminology, and obviously it's very influenced, it's a to me it feels like a night movie. When I you know when I think about Vice, I think about the day, obviously. When I think about this, I think about what you said, driving around at night, and you know almost kind of taxi driver sort of sort of thing it's dingy almost always raining in my memory you know metropolis mm. of pain right what i liked about the, the the talk radio was that it it alluded to a world that you were in that you would never see but you didn't need to so there you know the fake commercials or the commercials you know for you know uh, for for video games or for, for you know for weird drugs or for and for movies or just just in general there's a story about Ridley Scott, uh, who I believe when was it Hampton Fancher was writing Blade Runner, and they were going the, the first draft, I believe. And uh, uh, Ridley had asked him, he said, "You've made this amazing world, but it's all interiors. It's all kind of you know just like guys in rooms being you know, mooded." I'm paraphrasing it. And said, "What's outside the window?" And then Ridley used all of his experience in commercials and, and stuff to do it. But it felt like in this game you could see what was outside that window, even if you couldn't touch it or feel it. You couldn't go to the cinema and watch any of the fake movies. You couldn't play any of the, the games. But the fact they were alluded to and then just had enough in-game stuff, like, yeah, you see adverses, it was is the trickery of it. Uh, and I mean that in the best possible way. One of my big memories of this game is the fact that I always wanted to be inside. I always wanted to go inside. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember there being any like interior missions in this one, but they did add some in Vice City, and that seemed like a huge leap at the time. You were like, wow, I get to go in the houses. Because yeah. this, you know, my memory of this game is a lot of people like exiting doors from the insides to come out and tell you interesting things, <laughs> and then they go back inside, and you never really got in there. But you're right, like the... The radio and things like that definitely sell you on what's happening inside. It gives it a a life beyond because it's, it's quite a it's quite a grim place. The outside. The other tiny detail I always remember about this is that is that sort of visual effects filter of like windblown trash and paper yes, that's like yes. everywhere in this game. This game, this is like a d- dirty, dirty place. Yeah. Um, and that like a tiny attention to detail has obviously become like one of the defining things of of like you know what rock star really value but it's weird how something like that can kind of stick with you just the the, the look and texture of its trash is so specific yeah that's a really good yeah. point that is, uh, yeah. yeah for sure i think that um there's like sort of macro level stuff that blows you away and um you know basically on every level they thought about how to make this world um this world seemed kind of um, real or amazing. The, the first thing it did that really dazzled me was there is a point in the game where I believe that the um, Mafia go to war with the Triads and you see all of the Mafia NPCs and all of the Triad NPCs just fighting each other in the um, in the Streets of Liberty City. Yeah. And 
it only lasts for a few levels but i think but like i remember the idea that the world state had changed seemed amazing to me and there were just like set pieces popping off in different parts of the world that seemed like absolute magic do you remember that steve yes i do just once in my mind sorry just to to matthew's point about the interiors don't have me assassinated i'm wrong i think the closest we got to an interior was the chap in central park who would give you the missions out of the uh, the public toilets where you know you'd yeah. go under and, and in and that was <laughs> and and in all the sequels that was the thing that was the big ask wasn't it uh but to see the the world to to see it change like that and it, of course it's video games there's a lot of smoke and mirrors there's smoke and mirrors in every single art form or whatever but suddenly you'd gone from being in a game where you could point this car and go seemingly in any direction. But after a while, you know, the missions are what going to keep you there because the shooting had yet to be refined, shall we say, and there wasn't that much <laughs> mission variety. But to then change it without, you know, not just having a day-night cycle, which is important, but it was about going, the things, the story that you now drive here is driving a, a an effect, a, like a visual effect on this world and not only can you see, you can get out and be killed by. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's uh, it's visceral to use the phrase, which we the term we all love. I think that um, the, the the interesting thing about the mission design is that this game is kind of like it's rife with the difficulty spikes, and like the um, the entire series would be. But um, yeah, I think that that meant it took me a long time to get into the next um, part of the world. There is uh, The only other interior I remember is there is an internet cafe on Staunton oh, Island yes, where if you course. shoot out the glass, yeah, yeah, you can go in there. It's <laughs> Sorry, yes. team view that. Come on, Steve. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can go in there. That's, um, there's your interior. But I remember thinking the same thing. Like, uh, And then, yeah, you go into the um, hotel to save in Vice yeah. City and yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, for, holy shit. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I was curious if... Um, but Steve, you had any specific moments from the game that you kind of remember, or like um, anything in the story where you were like, "Oh shit, I didn't expect them to do that," or anything along those lines? It's it's less about the the story itself, as in as in the plot. I would say what I liked about it, and what I continue to like about the the plots in, in a lot of GTA games, is I like it when the and the this is how the you know generally usually progress is that you you know you have your low level gangsters, mafioso, whatever you want to call them. But then as the, the leaves of power start getting thrown or smashed or whatever, suddenly you're speaking with people who have an interest in a way that interests me, which is basically the corruption of 20th century America. And so the guys who I like in the series, is it Mike Torino, uh, James Woods' hmm. uh, corrupt uh, officer, uh, even the guy who gives you the missions in the, in, in the bathroom, uh, uh, the guy from was at United the Paper Company from Four. Just this feel, and that was another thing. It was this feeling that you weren't in a squabble or dyna- you know dynastic or, or, or territory struggle. What you were now in was something where the 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 actual powers that be had an interest, and now there was a commentary, no matter how basic it may have seemed at the time, and obviously they got a lot better, uh, more involved, should I say, that this world was now way bigger than you. But you were somehow the, the protagonist of reality. So now you've got these meetings with these guys who are just clearly way above your pay grade. And uh, and so that's so it's less about the plot 
um, but more about how it builds and builds and then just keeps on chucking stuff in and says, okay, you know, like the corrupt uh, DEA or FBI or, you know, the corrupt uh, alphabet officers, shall we say. Yeah, that's that's a staple. One other thing is that I loved the character, is it Donald Love? You know, the media impresario who, who owns the, who appears to own, to my mind, he actually owns the city because he owns the conduit to which you experience the world, which is the radio. Yeah. And so, and he had that like, that voice, you know, kind of deep baritone or whatever. Um, Karl McLaughlin. Yeah, right, exactly. And um, and again, this kind of unseen, almost like force, which, and there's a couple of missions about, you know, his tower and all of that. And I believe there's actually a really difficult, difficult spike sort of around that point, that point in the game. But that to me is what stands out. And also the guy on Chatterbox who says, guns don't kill people, keep, people kill people. I only use my machine gun in the safety of my own home or car. And it's just <laughs> like the, the, the car line at the end. It does me every time because <laughs> I don't, well, I, I know why, because it's, and so, so we, do you remember when we were in discussions about some of this uh, before and I played you 107.7, the bone, that San Francisco Bay area, uh, yeah, the, and the adverts and the callers it's insane it's just totally insane yeah it was like one of those insurance ads where it's like you can get therapy from home and it'll only cost you like nine thousand dollars and like one of your toes oh, yeah like, it's like yeah that that is to that to me is what what stuck out and like i'm i think i'm quite a few years older than you um uh, so it's it's more of a case of i don't know like i was I, there's stuff that I really liked about, I'm not saying, you know, your take on a juvenile or anything. My, I was, I was now being, I, I could just go, you saying about your dad having to buy for you and everything because you were 13, you know, so I'm, you know, a few yeah. years older than you. So I can just then go and rent certain movies that they're referencing. And so suddenly I'm thinking about it like, oh, that's where that's from. And that's where that's from. So I think that's, that drove a lot of the way I felt about it. Just being that little bit older, four, five years, maybe, it just it just tweaked my experience, I think. Uh, Matthew, what about you coming to this game like a little bit later then as someone who bought a PS2? And- we rented a PlayStation 2 and the game so I could play it for one weekend. Um, the only time this ever happened before was when I rented a PlayStation to play one weekend of Final Fantasy VII without a memory card. <laughs> wow. So it was like when you die, you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you ever, you ever want to try speed running the first disc of Final Fantasy VII <laughs> over a weekend? Oh, uh, uh, that's fun. Fuck you, that demonic house. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I remember you know, getting a chance to play it, and um, to be honest, my first my first sort of reaction was because I had this image of it built up in my head from reading Games Master, like I said, and I was just sort of annoyed at how fiddly a lot of it was because the promise of you can do anything you want in this city, and it's like well, you can do anything if you can execute yeah. it with these particular controls they've given you. And I was just really bad at it. Like, my lasting memory of that first weekend was dinging my car loads and having to take it to the pay and spray because I had to deliver a car and I was always damaging the car that I had to deliver. And so, like, quite a mundane first impression of this world. Like, it, they definitely got a bit more relaxed as they went on and they do loads of stuff as the series develops to kind of ease off the difficulty and but back then it felt particularly punishing and and maybe a bit more sort of video gamey in some of those ideas and systems yeah in terms of like missions i must admit like a lot of this game kind of sort of blurs into just the experience of being in the city like 
if you were to ask me, like I wouldn't have said, oh, this game had any celebrity voice acting in it, but actually looking into it for the episode, I'm like, oh, actually, it's got quite a lot. Like in my head, all that started in Vice City, yeah. mm-hmm. and this didn't really have any story. But that's just not right. You know, that is, I don't know where I got that idea from. Yeah, I think it's the lack of a voice protagonist that probably drives a bit of that. Um, because obviously, uh, when uh, Tommy Vassetti adds a very different dynamic to the game, he's like, you know, he is a, a force in the cutscenes, whereas you are just a guy who is told stuff and then you get on with it, which I think mm. has a bit of power in itself. I I remember the, I actually do remember the story. I think it's because I have a stronger relationship with this game than I do with um, Vice City or San Andreas, which I think makes me a bit unusual in how people experience the series. But um, I remember like one of the first moments that really blew me away is after you've done a long string of missions for um, Salvatore, the mafia boss, mm. um, he sends you to pick up a car. And along the way, you get like um, a pager message. And if you don't. Oh, yes. This is... Yeah. And if you don't read the message properly and you get in the car. It explodes, and it turns out that Salvatore was um, pushing you out of the picture because um, he thought you betrayed him. And um, I did do that the first time I played it, and like only the second time I was like, "Oh shit!" The message says um, the bo- there's a car. The car is rigged with a bomb. Don't drive. Don't go there. Come over to where we are right now, and then that um, leads you to the second island. That's uh, that's the that unlocks the next bit where you get in a boat and you're suddenly working with the yakuza. And you're suddenly against the people you've been um, you've been working for the whole time, yeah. and I thought that was amazing, Steve. Do you remember that bit as well? Again, and that was something which said, "Hey, actions have consequences in this world." And this is why I think it kept things fresh. That you, so you then got to this second island, but you were essentially kind of back towards not the start, the kind of beginning of the middle, because now you were still a stranger, and you got that safe house and all of that. But now there is a new bunch of. Um, dynamics to learn new places to learn where to drive to how to drive how to react and uh, to to that part of the world and i think that yeah that's it's a really strong way of doing it which uh and they you know they started to experiment later on with the map being open from the start or not and then maybe going back and, and forward as it were but uh it was yeah really powerful i would say yeah i think the gated world um is some has a more powerful effect in this one because you have never seen a 3d world like this before i think it's like more frustrating when you get to later games just because you know you know what a gta world looks like um fundamentally um but in this because you just have no idea what is waiting for you on the next island other than what you can see from the the skyline um from across um portland that it was like euphoric to go to a new place. It was just because you'd never seen a world like it before. I think that was um, that was really mm. important. Um, Bomber base, I definitely remember as um, a key moment. You sniping the different dudes yeah. while um, eight ball blows up. The yes, boat. that's yeah, like that's... a proper good end of first act. It was usually go here, shoot these dudes, come back. And this one was no like, go here, plan it, and obviously this reached its total, you know, apex for uh, online and its heists and that feeling of, of, of making obviously you made a lot more decisions there but the, the general concept is the same that we're we're doing we're executing something and we're making a decision on how i approach it rather than just bust in and kill all these guys you are still doing that but now you're thinking okay well i've done this first part of this mission so what's the best way so i don't fuck all that up as well because if you know yeah and i think uh, to, to matthew's point as well about about the controls is that I remember you get the AR-15 towards the end of the game uh, or towards the, the middle end of Act 2, shall we say, and that had a first-person view mode. And so suddenly it was the mo- 
you know, so rather than this, you know, the lock-on system, which was very fuzzy, you know, now you could you could almost free aim, and it just changed everything. And that's why I remember the PC versions being so well received because now you had mouse and keyboard control. It was totally free and open in a lot of ways. So it improved the playing experience, the action immensely. Oh, the weird thing with this game that I've seen a few people make this case in various video essays and write-ups over the years is that the slightly more hands-off approach or the simplicity of the missions, the fact that they maybe are a bit more sandboxy than the kind of cinematic kind of drive that Rockstar gets hooked on and that becomes a much bigger part of the picture as, as, as they kind of work towards modern day where you literally end up with these incredibly choreographed cinematic missions in like Red Dead Redemption 2. But some people kind of have a fondness for GTA 3 in terms of they see it as a bit more experimental and sandboxy. You know, you're given a mission objective and you can kind of achieve it any way you want within the rules of the game, almost. I've seen a couple of people say, like, it's almost a little bit immersive, Simi, you know, in that you can, like, set situations up by, like, parking vehicles to block off escape routes and then assassinate people that way, or you can just try and run them over. I didn't have that deep a relationship with this game to test that stuff out, but it definitely, it gives you, like, a a, a lot more leash to kind of try what you want, you know, and that leash, I think, gets shorter with each passing game. I I think that the... The ability to to play it, uh, to play later games like like what you're saying, is still there, but it's not as optimal. In fact, it's, it's suboptimal in a lot of ways. So uh, I used to do all that shit, uh, but and also the missions were difficult, so you had to get creative. You know, you'd you'd right. have to go. Well, I know where, I know that this this van turns this corner on its script every time. So I'll get my van and I'll stick it there. Hopefully the game won't eat it when I look away. <laughs> uh, and it was very good at that as well. Uh, okay, there was the bug with your um, garage, and there was sometimes you know you get a car and look behind you, and it just uh, the game, the game had deleted it or whatever. But I mean, you know, <laughs> we're not too far away from games like uh, was it Boiling Point Road to Hell on PC, <laughs> where uh, as I was told in one of the very very damaging reviews for it that uh, you spent all this time trying to save the money to buy your car that you needed. And when you bought it, the game just ate it. <laughs> you were just fine. <laughs> and so, you <laughs> just like, I mean, you'd laugh about it now, but I imagine I would smash my entire life up if that had been the case. But so, <laughs> there was, but you could, yeah, I, I know, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, but, but now the the shooting's better, the aiming's better, the the options available uh, are better, and they're not more funnels, maybe, but more more optimal is the way of doing it, especially mm. with the uh, GTA Five's characters' abilities. So basically, the game is saying you're in a mm. gunfight. This is your man, rather than okay. So now I've got to think. Well, I keep on dying. So if I can get this car here at this time, no, this is in Vice City. Sorry. But it's the the saber turbo, and you have to you race the guy to 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 win the car uh, towards the end of uh, Vice City, and I just couldn't beat him. And every it was a bit of a choke point, and people were like, "No, this is too difficult." And you know that you can just patch it there, and that was that. Get good, you know? yeah. So what I thought was, you know what, I'm just going to do it, and you're going to keep beating me, and I'm going to do it until I find out where that last turn is, because the game is going to punish me for not hitting any checkpoints, because the fail state is he beats you. So I found out where the finish line was, pulled the car up, got a sniper rifle and shot him dead. 
<laughs> and so he falls out the car. I get in the, you know, I get in my car, drive round and go through. You've won. <laughs> because you don't need him anymore. <laughs> He's just a conduit. Um, but I actually think in later versions of the game, that's patched out. That's interesting. And the difficulty dialed a little bit down. The, the later games would introduce quality of life, shall we say, improvements, which, which enabled you to, to get through it without having to yeah, immersive sim it. I think that it, there's a real push and pull within this game where it would get really tetchy about something like, oh, you dinged this car and you need to go take it to the pay and spray. But at the same time, I remember a race in this game on Staunton Island. It starts near the stadium and um, I couldn't do it. So I thought, what would happen if I blew up all four cars on the starting line, then just had a leisurely drive to the finish? And it did work, and the game let me finish that mission. Um, and yeah. I, I do like that, because I think that you could argue that's almost more of a kind of like Metal Gear Solid Five style open world design choice, where it's like, this is the objective, but... What you do in between doesn't matter as long as you fulfill the parameters of the objective. And it's true that yeah. later Rockstar games get a bit tetchier about, you know, oh, you, you started a you fight with this character or, you know, you lost you lost a trail for this and stuff. Yeah. And this game could have that too, but I almost kind of like wanted that more from the future of GTA, you know? This was obviously such a tremendously ambitious undertaking and that in a way it's sort of you know, very, this may sound too grandiose, it's like, uh, you know, the line when in The Matrix where Morpheus tells Neo some rules can be bent and others broken. And again, the, the imagine what was going on under the hood for this. And so it felt like with this game, if you could understand how it works, you could you could get around it. And and that also, I believe, fed into the because, you know, what you would what you would choose was violence because that is that is your uh, that is your currency in the game and it they still felt in universe so like what most people would call you know safe scumming or scumming the game or cheating it or exploiting it just felt in universe oh yeah i got beaten by this guy in this race i'm gonna fucking kill him <laughs> cool you get the car okay <laughs> those are the odds bye <laughs> As a spectator in the crowd, I would not be impressed if I went to see four people race and three of them blew up on the starting line and then the last person just pootled to victory. I think that would be a... Oh, you would. That's No, you would. That's all that thing where, you know, like where sports commentators say, we don't want to see things like these brawls. Yeah, I do. I want to see players get in the crowd. Maybe maybe not like morally or ethically. People getting exploded (laughs) might... Might seem bad, but it, at the start it would be it'd be cool. You'd be like, "Fuck, man, I'm going to be on YouTube." How much of what we consider important about future GTA games is in this one? So, Steve, we talked a little bit about this beforehand because um, Vice City, I think, is seen as like you know, it it just um, obscures the memory of GTA Three to a large extent. But I think that. Um, we were talking about how like all of the music from Scarface is in this game, for example, on um, Flashback FM, and um, and you know as Matthew mentions, there are celebrity voice actors in this game that maybe people don't remember. So, how much of what is important to um, GTA up until now is is in this this game? Do you think the main thing is that it, it, it knew where it wanted to be set? The original True Crime, Streets of Los Angeles. Their big selling point was now we've mapped all of LA. And it's like yeah, LA's really I love LA. LA's really dull and boring and shit to get around in a lot of places. There are two words which people think are interchangeable, but I don't think they are. It's realism and authenticity. Now, GTA 3 is not realistic. What it is, is what it feels like, is authentic. 
to being a mm. monster in a version of New York. And they that's what they did best then and best now, is that they give you a world that feels like the way it would feel to get around it. Like, no one wants to drive on the freeway in Los Angeles, right? No one. But everything in GTA V feels in its proper place. And the, the distances between districts and boroughs and, and that. And GTA Three did that really well. And yeah, the stuff about the islands as well is such a great thing because, as you say, gives you the sense of wonder that what is over there. And later GTAs would have it. So GTA V would just, okay, well, because they still have the fog of war on the map, right? Okay, so what is up there? And what if I go up this mountain? And invariably there'll be something there. And other open world games just had a bunch of nothing, but it was very realistic. And I think that's the key. And it kind of sets the template for, you know, the entire genre, really, where going to a new area um, elicits that feeling. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a little bit of that in Ocarina of Time as well. But um, here it's obviously the fact that it's all it's all in one place. Um, it's all one big location and a real feeling location as well. Um, Matthew, what about you? Do you think that a lot of what is important about future GTA games is in this is in this from the start. The strange thing is, is how many of their idiosyncratic control and gameplay decisions are established here, and you would think that someone having a first swing at it, the fact that you have to tap to sprint, and that continues forever for like the next twenty years, despite being incredibly irritating <laughs> and no one else doing it. It's 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 just a thing they decided to do and is it because this game is such a smash that they won't deviate from certain things? Is it just pride? Is it stubbornness? It's it's very hard to know where some of it comes from. I mean I was um re watching a few hours of this just be- before recording this. It made me laugh at just how established the kind of cutscene mission template is in terms of you turning up and some big like loudmouth caricature comes out and just barks like a few lines at you telling you to go and do something and those kind of characters they are definitively rock star characters the first mission you get in this game i think it's it's um it's voiced by joe pan Pantelineau, whatever his name is. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think Luigi is the character, right? The first guy. Yeah, he, yeah. You know, he just he literally a door opens. He comes out and he tells oh, yeah. you to go and like steal a car or go and collect one of his sex workers or something. You know, it is and it's just like a man popping out of the door telling you to do something with a bit of color, and then he goes back in the door, and like that is basically Rockstar for twenty years. <laughs> like even in Red Dead Two, which is so sophisticated in so many ways, is still a man coming out of the door with a funny voice and like enlarged gesturing arms you know comes out and tells you to you know drive across a map to pick up a barrel or something you know it's it it made me laugh at like how much hasn't changed and you know maybe it's just hey if it works it works it's it's interesting you earlier on you mentioned about the the difference with the silent protagonist and that thing about the rock star characters like you know in gta 3 you could argue this idea of having these big loud mouths makes perfect sense when you haven't got a voice yeah. protagonist you need something to kind of register yeah. and does that set in motion like the tone of all rock star characters or is it literally just the sort of satirical caricature caricature element and then it makes more sense to have a quiet protagonist because you don't, you know, if they haven't quite got a grip on what that character is or how to balance that character against those voices. You know, I, I've, 
I don't know what came first or what the decision was there, but that voice, even though I said earlier, you know, I thought it began in Vice City, here you can see it already and you're like, oh shit, like they really knew what they wanted to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of that, Steve? Yeah, I agree. I think there's, I think oddly as well, that as the game's graphics, as the series' graphics or visual fatality, should we say, got better, some of the, some of the more exaggerated stuff of it started to feel not incongruous, but suddenly was a bit of dissonance, I would say. So you're driving around mm. a very realistic Los Angeles, and then you've got the still very quite over the top. Um, don't know, like the, it felt to me, even though GTA Five is definitely, I, I reckon, it's in my fucking top two of all time. But this, that sort of thing didn't change, but the rest of the world changed. You know, it might just be they're like, well, the, the GTA project as we see it is, you know, is a satire on America, and you know. No offence to our American listeners, they're just saying, this is what Americans are all like, you know? They are like this. They are big. They are brash, you know? And maybe that's fine, but um, I think you could play me a clip of NPC dialogue from many different games, and I'd be able to pick out a Rockstar character from a mile off. They just have a certain a certain tone and sort of manic energy to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think uh, getting across the, the feeling of, of America, I, I went to the States with... Uh, my girlfriend, uh, you get there and you turn on the telly and there's an advert for in the middle of the day for tactical sunglasses. And most of, <laughs> most of the speech is run at 14 times human, human capability in small print, which basically <laughs> says you will fucking die if you put these sunglasses on. <laughs> and so I think it's difficult to, to kind of get away from that, especially as, you know, it's a, it is a global market. And okay, so the Americans probably thinking, yeah, but then a lot of Americans think the same about that as well. So yeah, it's I can see mm. why I can see why that sort of caricature, as you say, just just remains. But yeah, if you if you want to know what the reality is, as ever, one hundred seven point seven, the bone, San Francisco. Google it. Listen to it on internet radio. You won't believe the adverts. They're just oh, they they're the greatest, and in the worst <laughs> yeah. possible way. I I want to dig into that a little bit further because uh, so. Uh, GTA is kind of like jokes and satire. As time goes on, um, people get a bit tired of it. And I almost wonder if there's a bit of like a self-conscious element to, oh, well, we always have to do satire. But here, because it's the first time any of this has been done, it feels so fresh and it just kind of hits you out of nowhere. And I wonder if there is a particular outsider's perspective on it, because it's not like America can't make fun of itself. Of course it can. You know, loads of sophisticated um, comedy writers and performers um do that all the time but there's something very specific about how america american culture is taken down in that way that feels like an outsider's perspective to me do you think that is because it's a british developer making it steve i would say so definitely the thing that the brits are amazingly good at is is essentially taking the piss out of themselves which means they have no truck really with taking the piss out of everyone else and <laughs> obviously that can be damaging uh, in a lot of ways, um, not necessarily saying it's in these games, but when I came back to Britain, I had already essentially done all of my, well, not all of my, but a lot of my, the development and part of my brain was from somewhere else. So I come back, work, which is ostensibly home, and it just, it's just weird place because it's not yours, right? And so every little thing that suddenly goes against those little cultural mores, especially when they're now amplified through $35 billion dollars, you know, is going is going to be is going to be played up in, in that way. I, yeah, I remember 
I went into a hard rock cafe in LA uh, for reasons never really explained nor justified, I suppose. And uh, there was this almost Larry David style back and forth where I had said, can I get a serviette? And the server did not know what a serviette was. And But to me, and this was actually on me, not her, to me, from where I'm from, you're thinking, how on earth? But then someone just interjected going, he means a napkin. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that kind of, that, you know, they, they're two cultures which have the same shared language, uh, but with, with key cultural differences. I think those two rubbing up against each other is always going to be funny. The weird thing with um, Rockstar, though, for all this sort of satirising of, of, of the American dream or America or whatever you want to call it, they're also totally in love with the culture. Maybe like maybe that doesn't come out as much in 3. Obviously, Vice City is, is a love letter to a very particular era of film and TV, and San Andreas definitely leans big into the sort of LA films of the late 90s. Maybe it's just my hazy memory, but I don't remember 3 having as clear an identity in that sense, beyond maybe, like, here's some mafia, so it's kind of like the best hits of, you know, mafia films. Personally, I think that, I think like you say... Um, there's a very specific pop culture reference point they're using for the other two PS2 GTA games. Um, whereas here, like you say, you can you can you know link it to uh, Goodfellas or The Godfather, um, but it, you know it's not that's only one third of the game. There's a whole bunch of other characters that you're yeah. dealing with the rest of the game who are also caricatures. Um, I always felt like it was their intent was to let the city do the talking and to let the city be the big character. Like I say, it, maybe it's linked to the you know, having a protagonist who doesn't talk. But um, once you finish this game, and, you know, I played this game loads after I finished it, there are no more missions to do. There are no more mission markers. All you do is drive around, steal cars, hang out, and enjoy the atmosphere of the place. And I I, I almost think that maybe... I think you got maybe a point that they thought that perhaps, like, to take it to the next level, you need that extra layer of, you know, um, character to the place. But it felt to me they thought, well... You know, this is the first time this has been done. So, in some ways, the the place does the talking for you. There's, and maybe I'm reaching there. I think that um, that to a lot of people, I mean, obviously, we've got the um, uh, at the time we're recording this, they've announced the GTA Definitive Edition, and um, it's going to feature various upgrades on the uh, original games. To me, it feels like the beating heart of GTA on PS2 is considered Vice City or San Andreas by many players. Um, to what extent do you think that these games overwrite GTA 3 in people's memories? What do you think, um, when people reflect on the PS2 GTAs, GTA 3, is that naturally what people think of, or do the other games dominate a little bit? Speaking from personal experience, they definitely dominate. I mean, they obviously do so much important heavy lifting with this one. You know, in the old importance versus, you know, quality stakes, you know, GTA 3 is arguably the most important of all of them. Either the, the you know, the setting of Vice City is, is just so much more kind of iconic feeling to me that it that it overwrites it, or just the sheer kind of scale ambition of San Andreas. GTA 3 looks quite threadbare in comparison, if you don't necessarily have that big nostalgic connection with it that you clearly had, for example, just from doing this podcast, this feels like a game that means more to you, Sam, than it does to me. Hmm. Um, you know, I am definitely a, I had a more casual relationship with three and then it was over, you know, that was easily overwritten 
um, by the next two. I feel like, you know, Rockstar are a little bit like, here's the next big thing and this is what we're all about. And, you know, obviously they're returning and re-releasing these things, but each game so completely wipes the floor in ambition with the one before it, it seems, that it's almost by design now that they they replace what came before i think there's um there's other stuff that does the heavy lifting in the other games like you mentioned the music i mean people tie obviously um billy jean to the opening moments of vice city and that's such a statement of intent about um how the how things have escalated so yeah i completely understand why people's um uh, relationship with gta is heightened by those later games um Obviously, this comes first. It inspires a lot of different, like, clones. And, um, you know, uh, right up to the present day, really, like, Saints Row is still going as a series. I was curious, um, let's start with you, Matthew. Do you think there were any good GTA clones, or were they all shit? And as someone who had a GameCube, what was it like to see um, only the shit (laughs) ones happen on your console? Yeah, it is bad, because, I mean, you know, it's all those years of reading NGC, where it's like, move over, GTA, it's true crime. And... Until it comes out, you do believe, you know, you want it to be true. You're desperate for it to be true. So you're happy to go with it. And then it, you know, gets like the inevitable uh, 65. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's, I can't say there's many that I'm like sort of hugely fond of. I guess some of the sort of superhero spin-offs at the time, like your Spider-Man 2 on GameCube was about as good as it got, which had a bit of that vibe. I mean, it's it's a very different game, you know. You collect a lot more balloons that kids have let go of and things like that um, than you do in GTA. But in terms of like, oh, here's a city, this is really cool. I mean, the fantasy it's selling you on is, is very different. What I think is more interesting is that... In Saints Row, confusingly in the podcast timeline, we've had a conversation which is yet to play out. (laughs) It's going to be in several episodes of time you'll hear us talking about a Saints Row game where we were talking about its relation to GTA and whether the thing it does right is tapping into these early fun GTAs rather than kind of modern serious GTA. And Is Saints Row, particularly like 3 and 4, maybe more of an heir to these earlier GTA games than GTA itself? But um, you'll have to look forward to that in a future episode. Um, yeah, I mean, there's none that I'm hugely attached to. I just think doing them at the scale and pulling them off, you know, to the quality that that you need to do is is really only achievable when you're working at a success and scale and level of financial might that Rockstar are. You know, it's almost like don't bother uh, <laughs> otherwise, which is kind of sad but true. Yeah. What do you think, Steve? Were there any GTA clones, like, you know, either at the time or in subsequent years that you think, um, you know, nailed it or had their own kind of like angle that was valuable in itself? I think that a lot of them were were heading down the wrong path of going, right, ours has to be bigger. And as I said about the uh, realism, authenticity, whatever bullshit you want to call it. Um, But then there was stuff like in in True Crime Streets of LA, which I, I, you know, I played it. It suddenly had all this other stuff, which was, it felt a bit pro- producery, if you get me. It's like, what about if we do Grand Theft Auto? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Matrix is in it? Oh, I mean, of course. Of course! You know, it's pizza ice cream <laughs> top, man. So, uh, but I, I, I liked the ambition of that of that world. I just then realised it was a bit of a busted flush to keep, to keep going for it. Mm-hmm. Saints Row... I think fulfilled a, in one way or another, fulfilled a need, especially Saints Row 2, which I seem to remember having a good time with, in its co-op. So when GTA 4 was accused of being 
rather more, shall we say, serious. Because you've gone from San Andreas, Jetpacks, Area 51, to to GTA 4 story and the necessary technological limitations of some of the stuff. You know, they'd eventually build all that craziness back in. But at that point, they they felt like they they were focusing so much on the story, and that's that's fine. If Nico is telling a story about searching for a new life in America and trying to escape his past, if you've got a jetpack, it it might undermine the the (laughs) legitimacy of the message uh, somewhat. (laughs) So I think Saints Row fulfilled its purpose for a lot of people. I think people were, again, sort of looking for... A, they wanted they wanted fun. And and so a lot of... Maybe GTA 4 wasn't supplying much fun. It was supplying something really excellent, but not what they were accustomed to. And Saints Row is like, thank you very much. We've got you falling out of the plane to fucking, you know. So I think, all, I think each of them... A lot of them had something interesting, at the very least, or something to offer as the series kind of zigged and zagged. But I don't think any of them got close to what it what it could be when it was firing on on every cylinder. That's why I love the GTA for uh, you know the, the DLC the, that was very to me at least very obviously the staging ground for the the, the multiple character GTA Five, which then in and of itself says you've got to have characters with different personalities which fulfil different needs. Uh, for for players, so that was their reaction to, I believe, some of the pushback. Saying this is all well and good, and, and this is great, and this New York's insane, and I love this story, but I don't want to go bowling. I want to get a machine gun and just fucking, you know, just fly around, you know, shooting people and that. Yeah. So I think <laughs> a lot of them had something, and a lot of them took where GTA was, and then kind of maybe went, as I said, the wrong way, and tried to tried to push a lot of the tech stuff when really you know again the, the aforementioned boiling point a lot of shooters you know talk about far cry and the rest of it you know suddenly that was maybe an option okay i remember reading a preview i think in games tm of, of the original far cry getting really excited i think they called it encounter design or five minutes of fun or you know something along those kind of later halo-ish action bubble sort of line um, and it, that reminded me a bit of GTA. Okay, as Matthew was saying, we can do this. So a lot of them, I mean, some of them were just fucking toilet. But, <laughs> um, but you know, and even games like, say, Just Cause, the, the first one, I quite like the second one, the first one, that was, again, right, it's massive. The island is massive. Like, okay, but it had a cool thing. You had a grappling hook. Great, all right, fun. So I think each of them had something. But they could never marry it to what GTA does when it, yeah, when it's at its height. Yeah, mm. I think they a lot of them went like lowest common denominator. When um, when I think about GTA Three, one of the first things I think about is the opening with the music and um, the sort of uh, the, the sort of moving images, moving still images that make up the opening credits, and it's so mm. kind of like classy. And yeah, I think that all of the clones like took a different piece of it and built out on that but it was generally tied to you know how do we make how do we add bullet time to this or um yeah how do we escalate the tone of this so it's like even sillier or how do we put the simpsons in this um, <laughs> um yeah. so yeah whereas like gta always had like a layer of classiness so maybe you wouldn't think of gta as being classy when you uh, you sort of think about the series generally but it, it is you know it is classy and um 
Yeah, I had I it, it, it's cohesion was what made it feel like that, right? The original Saints Row, I remember the demo coming out, and uh, and and that was another big thing, a big coup for, for Xbox 360, is that suddenly you're moving away from um, from having to pay, you know, four ninety nine or whatever, five for for you know an official mag with demos on it. And so suddenly it was to me that was a little bit like the VHS revolution in the uh, in the eighties for knockoffs. So suddenly you could have a version of something much more famous and influential and good. But if you got it into people's hands at the right time, they would watch that shit or play it. And if it was easily available, Lost Planet. That was the first day. Didn't it crack like a million downloads? And suddenly everyone was now sitting up going, so if we've got mm. GTA or a version of GTA and there's no new GTA on the horizon for what seems like decades, cool. And I remember it caused a bit of a stir, um, especially because, you know, it looked like it did at the time, which everyone really liked. Uh, it sounds like this fidelity, not necessarily its art design. So, yeah, I think there's, I, mm. I think, but all of them were chasing an element of GTA, whereas GTA was was just going to outpace them every single time, so you're just left in the dust again. There were a few takes post-GTA 4 of Saints Row 1 is better than GTA 4. I remember thinking, come on, that's insane. It was like, it, I, I think that there was just a bit of um, bad intent to some of those takes. I just think that like people weren't willing to engage with what GTA 4 was trying to do, which was like you know flawed in a lot of ways, but also um, worthwhile. Um, in terms of like, I don't know, it was, it was it was sincere, and then I feel like when Rockstar went back to not being sincere and every character being a bastard who calls you up and you take you take missions from people didn't really like that either, and so yeah, it's a to- it's a tone thing. Yeah, it is, uh, and I think what it is is you're now so big and there's so much on the line, and the, and it's the, I think this is the same with, with franchises as they go along is that suddenly it's very difficult for both the creator and the player to move away from certain things that defined an experience before, even if you're trying to do something different. So as an example, I was very, I was the only player in the world, pretty, pretty much, it seems, who was really good at driving in GTA 4. And people hated that. Well, they hate it, but, you know, they, they didn't like the fact that everything seemed to turn like a boat and the weight of it. But... I played so much GTA 4 online, Cops and Crooks, and I'm shit at shooting, but I can drive. And so suddenly there's this dynamic. GTA 5 comes out, they tweak the handling. And you're like, Ugh. so suddenly that's taken away the edge, whether that's yeah. what I'm good at or what I like, or both. Once you hit a level of success and then do a follow-up, there's always going to be someone, or people in general, who don't... And you see this actually more acutely, I think, with first-person shooters. I mean, that can happen within the same game when something gets nerfed or buffed, right? Destiny 2 being the main one. So I think that's a necessary sort of evil, as it were, that you have to kind of get over or, you know... So uh, the last thing I wanted to ask then was um, whether GTA ultimately lived up to the potential of these PS2 games. Matthew, I'll start with you. Are more and more spectacular worlds all we really want from the future of GTA? Or is there something that these games had that maybe we, we don't see so much now. What, what's your take on where GTA is at and where you want it to go? Uh, oh, shit. I should have I thought, should have thought of a good answer for this. 
Sorry, did you think I was I wasn't going to ask you another question? No, we... I don't know. I no, I, I read this question beforehand, and I I thought, oh yeah, I'll wing it, but it's not really a wingable question. <laughs> How about I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, like it requires some thought and consideration? <laughs> How about I'm getting images of Jack Donaghy in Thirty Rock? I'm, I'm at my best when I'm under pressure. I've come out of... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how about I? How about I lay out some thoughts, Matthew, and then we'll... yeah. I, listen, I would love to hear your thoughts, which I can then agree with. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, good. Good podcasting. Okay, so yeah, I I personally think that a lot of it is here, and if anything, they're a little bit too indebted to these games. I keep thinking about a mission in GTA Online I did, where it's one of the heist missions, and you're you're blocked into this little square. Um, and then enemies come at these three different alleyways and then push towards you, and then you have to survive and get out. And I was there thinking, is this actually open-world game design? I mean, we talked about this earlier. Like, it was mm. much more sort of guided hand. And, like, um, yeah, there are some missions in GTA 3 that hint at that uh, not being the case. I think about um, Espresso to Go, which is a fucking nightmare mission where you have to smash these nine different um, drug stands um, across the three islands. Oh, and, and, man, and, I just... Yeah, oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, an absurd time frame. And I needed, like, a guide to tell... There's a specific order you can do it that is, like, yeah. uh, that won't break your brain. But it took me ages to do it. But um, it was like a... In a sense, it was kind of like <laughs> for a sort of a free-form mission design where it's like, well, you have to figure out what the optimal route is. You can start on this island start on that island you can go to this one first or that one first and it becomes this grand thing of like you you have to figure out what it is ultimately um it's you know it's it's just one objective but then you can do mad stuff like well if i turn on the flying car cheat and in, instead of having to, to drive to this bridge i just fly over to the next island and and smash it that way and the game will still let you finish the mission and move on i think about how that GT Online mission have been hemmed into that square isn't so much open world mission design. And I do like wonder if the future of GTA might be more exciting if it did have that MGS5 style thing. If, well, well, this is the mission. Um, we'll drop you in. You know, you, you can go pick up anything you like or come from the sky, from the sea, whatever it might be in order to finish this. And I think that that is maybe what I think that the that Rockstar need. Like, there's nothing wrong with their world building or the worlds they design. They're fantastic. But I think, like, an evolution in mission design is the thing that I think maybe mm. GTA could use. Any thoughts on that, Matthew? I completely agree. <laughs> okay, great. Um, Steve, what do you think? Is there anything else that you, um, you think that the future of GTA sort of really needs or anything that kind of got lost from these PS2 games? Um, going forwards, there was a there's a heist mission. I'm not sure if it's the same one. I think it's the the bank robbery, and then you do start in a square, and you're on motorcycles, and, you, and someone's in a truck. And I remember rage quitting it like a child because <laughs> I just tried to to do something similar. Where after you know failing it a few times, I realised that this is the basic attack pattern. So I'm just going to hop on, fuck off. And then it goes, yeah, you've left the mission area. And I'm like, well, well you know, you, you, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to get out of it. Um, I think that what GTA Online says to me is that the experience is trying to go deeper rather than necessarily wider. So, yes, there are. There's that other island, and then the, there's the new diamond casino, I believe. Uh but that's more iterative rather than saying, hey, and now there's another 400 miles of, of whatever. So I think I was always really into the, the weird sort of proto um, GTA Online-ness of 
GTA Vice City stories where towards at some point, maybe just when you kind of open the world up properly, you can start deciding on your criminal empire. And, you know, you've got the rackets and you've got how much money you put in protection and this. And I always thought that in GTA 5, and this is what GTA Online actually achieved, GTA 5, to me, in its initial release, I I wasn't, I mean, I love it. I wasn't upset by it. But I thought there's something else here. And I described it as using money like most people would use bullets. It's about using money to influence the world. And that's exactly what they've gotten into now, right? So you've got to essentially, they, they, they have the job titles, you know, you're the CEO or all this. And that's fine. So I think wherever they go will be more like that. And maybe this is just the last vestiges of the GTA 5 um, way of doing things and the older GTAs. I'd be amazed if they released a new one anytime soon. And, but I'd also be amazed if it wasn't pretty much persistent online, make the world as you want to see it, which is what they're doing now. Uh, and it's obviously phenomenally successful. So I think it's a bit of both. GTA Online says to me, that's where the money is for them. And that's where the depth rather than the breadth is, is where they're going to win. It wouldn't surprise me if the world was slightly smaller in the next one. But from the, the get-go, you could get into all of this, all of this stuff whilst also having a, a sort of, you know, a, a story which leads you through. See, I think they're actually going to, they're going to keep them more separated than ever in a sense. I think that they're so, they're so aware of people's criticism that they don't make single player DLC anymore, but they make loads of GTA Online updates. So they'll keep those as like, you know, they'll be very binary. Um, you'll do your story and then you'll have the online option um, to go with it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll see. That's a big unknown. Um, that oh, another <laughs> another point. Um, there's one year separating the release between uh, GTA Three and Vice City, and there's probably going to be ten years at least between GTA Five and GTA Six. So what a different world we live in, you know? Mm. That's um... yeah. That's yeah. I also had something the other day where I realised that when GTA San Andreas launched, the the uh, pop culture or the the cultural uh, place it was set in. <laughs> Uh, which seems so long ago, which if you uh, deducted the same amount of years from now would be around about 2009. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so after the release of GTA 4, yeah, we're doomed, man. We are doomed. <laughs> uh, Yikes. Me and Matthew talked about this on, a, on another podcast, but we like, I think the gap between um, Vice City, uh, I think like, I think Vice City relative to... Um, when it was released, is like 2005 to now. Um, I think it's like late 80s. And we were saying, <laughs> what would you put in it that represented 2005 culturally? And we came up with Paris Hilton and the film Inside Man. And those are like, <laughs> that was all we could do to sum up those years. I, I um, saw Inside Man in the theatre and I didn't hate it, but I did not see Paris Hilton. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's odd to think of those things. I mean, I don't know. There'll be something like, oh, now I'm thinking about 2005 and a lot of those, uh, those, those early to mid aughts as wankers would call them, I suppose, just feels like a real wasteland. <laughs> it's all low rise. It's all low rise, uh, low rise women's trousers. <laughs> yeah. That's the game. <laughs> I, and the OC. That's it. Uh, and Von Dutch or whatever cats. That, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, Strange. Well, I mean, that's you know, the very blinkered and myopic, you know, version here. But uh, yeah, I would love them just before we run. I would love them to do if we if they're going to do story stuff still. I would love them to do uh, almost like a GTA anthology, 
you know, I'd love a 70s LA one. And, you know, wasn't it Drivers, uh, was Parallel Lines? Actually, a lot of people really like that, don't they? We didn't discuss that one earlier. For it's, it's time hopping and stuff like that. But yeah, I would like, uh, I'd like that. But yeah, I just, it has been so long. And the, the simple fact is that the GTA Online is, is simply too profitable. From a, for a company to just go, right, on to the next one. You just can't. Because someone's going to go, well, mm. what about me? <laughs> so it's no wonder to me, really. Whatever it is, there will be a bit where a man comes out of a door and tells you to go and kill someone. <laughs> that will, and then he'll say something funny, and then he'll go back inside. Yeah, amen. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's wrap up there then. So, um, Steve, where can people find you on social media? Well, terribly loaded uh, question. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm at the Steve Bernio, so the Bernio's B-U-R-N-I-O. Uh, that's my personal survey. I use that the most. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it uh, for for that. Uh, yeah, you can uh, you can go onto Twitter and read my many and varied hot takes on why new Halloween movies don't work. <laughs> um, why their mise en is bad. And you'll go, man, this guy's full of shit on the podcast and it's getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Now, I really appreciate you joining us, Steve, and sharing your, um, your thoughts on, on GTA. It's um, been an absolute pleasure. Um, Matthew, where can people find you on social media? I'm at Mr. Basil underscore pesto. You can follow uh, me at Samuel W. Roberts. The podcast is Backpage Pod. You can email us at backpagegames at gmail.com. Ask us a question, that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, thanks again, Steve. And uh, yeah, I look forward to playing that GTA Definitive Edition and pitching. If you enjoy the later GTA games, you need to go to jail. That sounds like a good, <laughs> a good angle. Yeah, I mean, um, it'll work, dude. It'll work. I mean, you can say anything these days. You can just, you know, you can come out and say The Godfather Part 2 shit. It would, someone will agree. <laughs> well, there was some unbelievable take earlier today, okay, saying, uh, yeah, Halloween's just a rip-off of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, what are we talking about? It's fundamentally different. Oh, they've got a, one of the guys got a mask on, so is the other one. Right, good. <laughs> right, got it. <laughs> you can just say anything these days. Yeah. Uh, well, and uh, negative, negative feedback is sometimes worth more than positive. So. <laughs> well, there you go. And you can look forward to our 10-part Halloween podcast with Steve coming soon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, yeah. liked, uh, if you liked fairly dry uh, uh, mise-en-scene, as I said, breakdowns of, uh, uh, of, of cultural wars for outdated video games, then you've come to exactly the right place. <laughs> okay great thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week goodbye bye for now bye